we begin with the conversation and information on the issue that, well, it just won't go away. In the midst of a summer wave, we know there's a lot of COVID out there right now. Our third dose rate here in BC is approaching 62%. That's basically been that number for some time. Numbers also indicate that there were more than 2,300 positive cases reported in a week. The actual number of cases is probably many times higher. But what it does tell us is that activity is increasing and therefore there's higher risk to the public right now. That's New Brunswick recording consistent increases in hospitalization, healthcare workers out with the virus. That province's deputy chief medical officer of health points out that's likely only a fraction of the transmission. We're starting to see it across the country and worldwide. By the way, if you're counting, this is the seventh wave. Raywat Dionandin joins us. He is from the University of Ottawa. He's a global health epidemiologist, associate professor with the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences. Raywat Dionandin, great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Raywat, before we come to Canada, let's, let's talk about the hot spots worldwide when it comes to COVID. And I gather... It's not just hot in parts of Europe. This is a hot spot for COVID, too. Yeah, in particular, the UK is looking pretty rough. Their, uh, their death rates have spiked in, in recent uh, weeks. France is looking pretty hard as well, as is Portugal, most of Western Europe. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, we're at the point where the world is on fire in many ways. So looking quickly around the world, we see if you, if you think about the, um, the cases of highest incidence rates of COVID being red, the countries that are the deepest reds are like the United States, Brazil, uh, Peru, the UK, um, Spain, even Turkey is looking pretty rough. Uh, Japan, strangely enough, has started to see uh, an explosion of cases, whereas um, they have been well controlled throughout this pandemic. So they're seeing some extraordinary uh, rates of transmission as well. So we are not done with this pandemic yet. Up until you mentioned Japan, I was thinking, oh, the usual suspects. Yeah, even Australia is uh, looking pretty rough too, and they had things under control for the longest time. And I think What's going on here is a combination of a restriction, uh, sorry, a lifting of restrictions in many countries and the arrival of some new hyper-contagious variants. And we say this every few months, the latest variant is hyper-contagious, but the new ones really are hyper-contagious, more so than previous ones. So it's hard to avoid infection now. Yeah, there's so much COVID fatigue about this. And as it becomes part of our lives... We tend to, I'm not saying ignore the warnings because I know a lot more people from my perch here in Winnipeg that are wearing masks indoors again, even though we're not being told to wear masks indoors. But certainly um, we look at this and we go, okay, well, I remember when we first spoke a couple of years ago and you mentioned, you know, likely 2023 before We'll we'll get rid of this in its entirety, and I I I, I want to come back to that in a, in a few minutes. But let's spend some time here educating ourselves on the new variants here. Uh, how is this uh, coming about? Talk to us about the science about this, and then ultimately how scientists are trying to deal with these variants by 
uh, altering and updating our vaccines? So what are variants? They are simply different versions of the existing COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They are mutations, but mutations not so extreme that it's a whole new species. It's like uh, it's got a, a, a nose job, so you can still recognize it, but you got to squint a little bit to see it. And mutations like this arise when there is so much transmission that the virus gets a chance to try on different faces. People need to understand this is a random process. This is the way evolution works. There's mutations happening all the time. It's just that occasionally, if enough mutations happen, one arises that is beneficial to the organism. And beneficial for a virus is, means it infects more people. There is a sentiment out there which is incorrect uh, called avirulent theory that says that uh, viruses tend to evolve to be more contagious and less lethal. That's not true. They don't have to do that, so long as there are plenty of people who can still be infected or non-human people, like uh, animals and so forth, who can uh, serve as reservoirs. This thing can continue to be more and more lethal while evolving to be more contagious. So that's what's happening here. The, the virus isn't consciously trying to be more contagious. It's just mutating all the time, and more contagious ones pop up because there is so much transmission, which is why it's so important that we vaccinate as many people in the world as we can to slow down the rate of arisal of new variants. The concern, by the way, we, we rank these variants in three different ways, variants of interest, variants of concern, and variants of high consequence. And the distinction between those categories has to do with our ability to detect, prevent, and treat the disease. So, so far, no variants of high consequence have been so named, which is the good news. We've had a large number of variants of concern, however. And these are concerning because they can evade our immunity somewhat. So B, uh, B2, which was the second version of Omicron, was concerning because it seems to um, confer upon the virus the ability to reinfect people. That was scary enough, but now B4 and B5, B, sorry, BA4 and BA5 are what's driving the current seventh wave in Canada, and they're really avoiding immunity that was garnered through previous infection or through vaccination and are reinfecting a large number of people. Now there's a new one making the news in India, BA 2.75, I think it is, that uh, possibly is even more contagious. The good news here is that these new subvariants of Omicron aren't necessarily more serious than their forebear. It's just that they can infect more people. Now, I do want to add the caveat that the vaccines still work very well to prevent the worst outcomes of sickness. They're just not very good right now at preventing initial infection and therefore transmission. At least two doses is not very good. Three doses are waning somewhat. Four doses at least for a, few, for a little while, is still pretty good at preventing infection and transmission. So that's where we are right now. There are new vaccines coming down the pipeline. Uh, what's making the news all the time is the new bivalent vaccines available, we hope, in the fall. And these bivalent vaccines are tuned to both the original strain that infected us in 2020 and the Omicron uh, first Omicron strain that arose in uh, December and January of uh, 2021 and 2022. But those new bivalent vaccines might not be here in time. Uh, who knows, by the time they're available to us in the fall, 
the new dominant variant might be something different. And it's unclear exactly how much advantage the bivalent vaccine offers uh, for infection, uh, for prevention of infection of BA4 and 5, more so than the current vaccines do. I'm looking ahead, though, to next year, I hope it'll be next year, when a new generation of vaccines become available. And I'm talking specifically about intranasal vaccines. Intranasal vaccines hold the great promise of preventing actual infection and prevention and transmission very, very well. So that has the potential to end the pandemic once and for all, if we can get that in enough arms. We will pick up the conversation on that and where this is all headed and how we can continue to protect ourselves. I'm Richard Infraben with Raywat Dionandin from the University of Ottawa. We're back in a moment. Richard Kluche in for Ben this week and Raywan Dionandan from the University of Ottawa. We're talking the latest on COVID and uh, the nasal approach to this. I know warp speed in the United States and that's been a success. Uh, talk to us about the whole idea of getting um, the vaccine or the next generation of vaccines uh, essentially where we've been testing uh, through the nose. Talk to us about the research on that. Well, the science suggests that because Omicron and its descendants enter through the nose and reproduce in our nose, then the place to produce antibodies should be your nose. If you can provide the thugs of your immune system to be exactly where the virus is going to enter, you've got a better chance of keeping it out of your body entirely. It's been trialed in animal studies and shown to be very effective. It's been shown in small human studies to be effective, and it's been shown in uh, intranasal vaccines for other diseases to be effective. So the idea is you, you simply spray it in your nose and absorb it through the nasal mucosa. That's where the, uh, the immune reaction takes place. That's where the antibodies will be produced, and that is where your primary defense against incoming infection will be mounted. So it doesn't perfectly prevent infection and transmission, but it does so very well. Now, we need more trials to determine the limits of that efficacy, to determine how safe it's going to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's happening right now. What we need is for that to happen at a larger scale and faster with more candidates simultaneously, like we did with Project Warp Speed. And if you don't know, Project Warp Speed was funded by the American government mostly, and it allowed a variety of vaccine candidates to mount expensive clinical trials simultaneously so that instead of waiting many, many years to get a viable vaccine candidate, we got a bunch of them in under a year, which is just astounding. The reason that was possible was a variety of things. Uh, among them, um, the technologies were already being developed for other diseases. Uh, we have a rampant disease, so a clinical trial could finish earlier, the rate of infection being high. But most importantly, government underwrote the financial risk of creating these expensive clinical trials. That has always been the rate-limiting step in developing these kinds of drugs. So if we can do the same thing again for this next generation of vaccines, we can get a product to market much, much, much faster, and I think we can end the pandemic faster. And, and that's where I fear very much like the public fatigue over this, that there's been government fatigue over this. And, um, you know, if suddenly the experts that we have been leaning on, like you, are saying, well, perhaps we can end this once and for all. You know, I want people to 
you know, hear that and repeat that because I think in many cases we've resigned ourselves to wave after wave after wave. Um, thank you for this good news. And I uh, want to do more than hope. I want to get behind this in a big way. And I hope many people from coast to coast uh, start talking about this because I think that's essential to get people back and focused in on this. Um, the vaccination rate, though, right now, we need to continue. We, we seem to be stuck, depending on what province you're in. We're stuck at that rate. Um, we need to to continue to to encourage that. But we're only days and weeks away from children being able to get their first shot. And, and that's good news for young families. And, and you're a young dad with young children as well on, on this front. So this is good news, too. It's very good news. It's tempered, though, by a couple of things, primarily uh, the fact that the efficacy for the pediatric dose is not as extraordinary as we would have hoped. It won't prevent transmission to a very high extent. But most importantly, it will give you a very high probability of keeping your child out of the hospital, which is what we as parents care most about, right? So the Moderna dose, which is the one that's been okayed in Canada for kids under under five years old, has an efficacy against symptomatic disease of about 37% if you are under two years old and about 51%. Um, so reverse that, 51% if you're under two years old but, and 37% if you're above two and under five. So a combined efficacy score of something around you know, 45, 50%. And that's just for symptomatic disease. In the hierarchy of what vaccines can do, you've got transmission, infection, symptomatic disease, hospitalization, and death. And the higher up that scale you go, the more effective the vaccine is. So it's probably really quite effective at preventing hospitalization and death, which is what I really, really care about. We haven't got the doses yet, um, and that's a bit troubling because we have to start getting them into arms now so that come the start of elementary school in September, our children have maximal protection. So I hope we get those doses locally as soon as we can. Meantime, mask up, social distance, be careful. I think that's the advice that I'm hearing uh, even in the middle of the summer, even the middle of a seventh wave as it starts to spread in this country, correct? Yeah, more than that, though, you can do other simple things. You can uh, be more careful with the exposures you choose. You don't have to go to that crowded event, especially with your unvaccinated child. Wear a good quality mask. Get an N95 or a KN95. They are easy to get now because those surgical masks do something, but not as much as the N95s and KN95s can do. And also look into ventilation solutions. We don't talk enough about that. By which I mean, get a HEPA filter for your home if you're going to have people there who, whose vaccination and infection status you're unaware of. If you're on a business or a school or something, get uh, HEPA filters or build what's called a Corsi Rosenthal box, which anyone can make for about 70 bucks. Get a couple of fans and a furnace filter and just make a box out of it. Go online and get instructions. This has been shown to reduce the concentration of viral load in a large room and reduce the probability of transmission that way too. So a, a combination of tools that we know work, masking, symptom checks, vaccination, and ventilation will get us through this. Rewa Dionandan, Global Health Epidemiologist Associate Professor with the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for joining us, my friend. Thank you.